You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Battle of Armageddon. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ with immortal saints will be victorious and there'll be a kind of an enormous clear up operation. Uh, We know that from Ezekiel 39. So you think we were this morning in Ezekiel 38 uh, in terms of thinking about go coming down. It then talks about the battle and in chapter 39, it talks about a huge clear up operation that's going to be needed before Israel then becomes the territory of the kingdom. And it's not, and I think you guys would all recognize this, that the second Jesus comes back, that the world is changed. It's a millennium period. It's a thousand years. So it begins. So just as you see in Daniel 2, that stone hits the image and it grows. Okay. So too, that's, that's a picture of the kingdom growing. That the Israel becomes the nucleus. Jerusalem is capital. And over time, the character of God, the glory of God, because of the work that's going on in the kingdom, eventually comes to fill the earth. So that eventually the, the earth is a place rid of the problem of sin, and the Lord God can be all in all, can dwell once again with man. That's the picture, isn't it, at the end of Revelation. So uh, we're not going to, we're, we're right at the beginning of the millennium in this study. Uh, we're talking about the time leading up to the Battle of Armageddon even, which is, you know, towards the beginning. Um, and, and as is so often the case in scriptures, we're going to be looking at passages which had an initial fulfillment, but their ultimate fulfillment is clearly one which is still future. We believe that the journey that the Lord Jesus takes with the saints to go up to conquer Gog, Russia, that's come down with these other nations too, begins in Sinai, which is where we think the judgment will take place. Why? If I ask you that, why? Why is it that Christadelphians have said for a long, long time that the judgment will take place at Sinai? Would you be able to sort of have some sense of uh, giving an answer to that? If not, great, this study is for you. Okay, we'll see if we can get into it. Come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. sort of give you uh, the answer and then we'll see if we can go about proving it okay so we believe that the judgment will take place at Sinai do you see how I've done that I, I feel like I'm a sort of a year six child again actually in the way that I just did that that uh, in year six you know we'd be telling children in primary school don't forget to answer in full sentences and uh, I feel like that's what I just did so the reason that we believe that the judgment is in Sinai is because okay uh, and the reason is is because Exodus 19, which is a passage about when, you don't need to go there now, but we will go there eventually, a passage when Israel come to Sinai very clearly connects with this passage, I'll show you shortly. But more importantly than that, which we'll get on to, passages which speak about the journey of the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints demonstrate that they follow the pattern of Israel 
coming from Sinai into the promised land. And that's what we're going to sort of open up this afternoon, okay? So there's essentially two key reasons why we believe the judgment will take place at, at Sinai. One, because a passage about the return of the Lord Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to look at it, very clearly links to Exodus 19. But, but almost more crucially than that, passages which speak about the journey of the Lord Jesus and the saints going up to defeat Gog eventually, are very clearly shown to us in the light of Israel leaving Sinai and going up to the Promised Land. So we're going to see if we can prove that then through this afternoon. Let's first of all see if we can connect 1 Thessalonians 4 with Exodus 19 then. So let's try and do both. Okay, it's a really good thing to do, isn't it? So let's hold 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's try to try to open Exodus 19 at the same time. And. Uh, Sometimes when a speaker does this to you, almost to think to yourself, right, I'll choose one of them to write my notes, to write my cross-references, and then in the other one, just write links to Exodus 19, or links to 1 Thessalonians 4, and then you kind of know in future, if you, by just looking at the links to, you go to the other passage, and there you'll have your kind of, your, your detailed links, okay? Uh, and eventually it might be that uh, you, you kind of put them both into to, to one passage. So, you've got Exodus 19. This is when Israel, having left Egypt, they come to Sinai, okay, really significant passage, and then they go on from here, in, in their case, they have to wander the, the, uh, uh, around the wilderness for a long time because of their lack of faith, but actually their journey could have been a 10-day journey from here, no problem at all, up into the promised land. But they, we, we know in their case they didn't do that. 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to go in at verse 15, okay, but you're holding Exodus 19 still. What, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. We're not, we're not going to go before them. We're going to meet together. Verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. So it's the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. With a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in clouds to meet the Lord in air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So it's not for a moment saying there that we will be caught up into air and we're going to be permanently stuck in the air with the Lord. That, that is not anything to do with the kingdom, is it? The kingdom is the kingdom on earth, and it's all about actually things that we're doing in the kingdom millennium time. So it's just saying, it's basically helping us to understand, don't worry about how you're going to get there you will be caught up through the air. You will be brought to the Lord so that we can ever be with the Lord. Now, remembering Exodus 19, this is highly significant passage, okay? If you just look at Exodus 19 now, you're holding both still for now, and verses five and six, you see that here is where Israel were brought into a, a, a new covenant relationship. Uh, it's not the new covenant, but they, they're brought into this covenant relationship with God. And they're promised, aren't they, there in verse six, that they will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Uh, in, a good cross-reference to put in your margin there, if it's not already there, is Revelation 20 and verse six, where Jesus says, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, as in still to come, us. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign as kings with him a thousand years. Okay? Now, 
Let's see if we can put some of these connections into our Bibles then. So, we see in Exodus 19 that this point at Sinai, this kind of immensely significant uh, chapter, Yahweh, the Lord, came down upon Mount Sinai. And immediately we see a link. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16. The Lord himself shall descend. Okay? I love when I look out to seeing people willing to pick up a pencil and to make a cross-reference. Okay? I, I promise you over the years, I I've learned as a teacher and as a learner that you've got to engage in learning if actually you're going to retain it. Okay? You really do. I never ever convince yourself that you will somehow just remember what someone's taken hours and hours of study to try to kind of find out. It just doesn't happen in reality. Okay, I remember being in a university lecturer, uh, in a lecturer, sorry, you know, 20 years ago now, and a university lecturer shouting across at some guy who was sat there just kind of like pretending he was like some, some Greek philosopher, just sat there kind of stroking his beard. Like, and the guy said, to him, what are you doing? And the guy said, oh, no, I, I'm, just, I'm just listening, I'm remembering. He said, you are kidding me. You're never going to remember any of this. You you should be writing it down. And it really hit me at the time to think to myself, how many lectures, how many talks do I go to that I think are way more important than any university lecturer you know, that I'm listening to, and I'm sat there just assuming that I'm going to retain it. You've got to engage in learning. Okay? Get yourself into it. Make some notes somewhere. You know, It doesn't have to be in your Bible, does it? But get into it, and actually you'll find that you start these things start holding on in your mind a bit more. Hopefully, while I've been ranting, you've been making some notes, okay? And uh, you've got some of those connections there. So the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, we see that 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 again. The thick cloud, we'll notice, they're caught up together with clouds, and it's about the meeting, the meeting there with God, the meeting the Lord. So we think that it's highly significant that a key passage in the New Testament about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ clearly connects us to Exodus 19 when the children of Israel came to Sinai. For those who are in Christ, this is the time when at the judgment seat, the Lord Jesus will help us to understand our need for God's grace before granting us immortality, which will be, of course, then an irreversible change. So I've said already, haven't I, that sometimes when we pray or we think about the kingdom, we can think about that time when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and just think, oh, we can't wait for that time and everything will just be in an instant perfect. Well, of course, that is true for individuals who've served Christ in this life. It, we will be changed. Okay, and actually that will be an irreversible change and in an instant that will happen. But the process for the rest of the world is going to take years, a millennium period, as it says in Revelation chapter 20. And there are lots and lots of passages about the kingdom, that time. Uh, what's thrilling and exciting is trying to put those together to get a sense of what the kingdom will be like. Uh, and what you need to do when you're kind of reading these passages is think to yourself, big picture, uh, then focus in on the details, then, then zoom out again. So let's first of all just think like that in terms of the big picture of the Lord Jesus Christ's return. And, and what I'm trying to do there is help you to say that, or to see that actually, if you sometimes think big picture, you realize just that some of these things is just following logic to understand, oh yeah, that, must, that passage must follow that passage. That must be what happens next. So, so let's try to do that now, see if we can give an example of what I mean by that. 
Of course, the goal is to set up a kingdom which will ultimately be full of the glory of God, his righteous character. We know that. That's the end goal. But what needs to happen first? What's the first thing that needs to happen when Jesus comes back? Anyone want to shout out an idea? If not, I don't mind giving an idea, but come on, I'm interested in what your thoughts are. What's the first thing that must need to happen? Yeah, I think somebody called out that somebody needs, someone needs to be raised. Yeah, is that right? Somebody shouted that out. Like, that's a great suggestion, okay? So I think you're right, that the resurrection, okay, needs to happen first of all. Who's resurrected? The responsible dead, okay? And, and then there's a calling of the responsible living. So 1 Thessalonians 4 just helped us with that to say, look, those things will happen simultaneously, okay? That the responsible dead and the responsible living will be called. At that point, there's got to be a judgment. That's logical, isn't it? That's what's going to happen next. You're not going to have the judgment and then the resurrection. People are being raised and are being uh, called, the, res the responsible living, being called to the judgment. Uh, yes, there's, then, there's got to be a setting up of the kingdom. But for that to happen, then the land has got to be cleared of enemies, of problems. You know, the Battle of Armageddon is going to happen, isn't it? We're then going to clear up the land, we can start trying to set up. Uh, the kingdom grows, as we sort of mentioned a few times, that idea of Daniel 2, a God being all in all. And I promise you, you could fill slide after slide after slide with bits in between, okay? Particularly between 4 and 5, of the temple being set up uh, in Jerusalem, of the way in which the quality of life starts improving, um, that the uh, leaves of the trees being used for the healing of the nations, like just so many things, passages that you can get into, um, the preaching work that's going to go on with Elijah and others, you know, so there's lots and lots of details that we can add into that, but there is a sort of general framework that we can work to, the big picture as it were. So our study now is going to focus on the part between point two and point three there between the judgment, okay, and us being then made immortal at the judgment, and then the setting up of the kingdom, the, the point between there is where we're going to focus. How do we get from that location of the judgment to Jerusalem to set up the kingdom? And there are a number of passages which speak about that journey. The one that I'd like to turn to first is Habakkuk chapter 3. So we'll pick up again in five minutes when we've all found it. Habakkuk chapter 3. Con considering the fact that we've already done a study on Gog coming like a storm, think about what these verses are likely to be referring to. Habakkuk 3 and verse 12. Habakkuk 3 verse 12. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people. So this, whoever the thou is here, it's talking about them going to save God's people, Israel. Even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the fountain unto the neck. Selah. 
Selah, by the way, never ignore it as a word. Don't ignore any word of scripture. It just simply means value what you've read, okay? It's nothing to do with a musical thing. It simply means value what you've read, okay? You can find the word in Job talking about the word value. So just when you see Selah, good point to just read it and have a, a, a pause for a couple of seconds. Value what you've read. So we value what we read. Verse 14. Thou didst strike through with staves the head of the villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. I put in my margin, Daniel 11 verse 40. Ezekiel 38 verse 9. That's how the king of the north is described, isn't it? They came down like a whirlwind. And so they came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. But thou... This must be speaking about Jesus and the saints. Didst walk through the sea with thine horses to the heap of great waters. You didn't worry about them at all. You were able to deal with it. So I think we can say with confidence that that is talking about Armageddon. When God, through the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints, will be able to go to Jerusalem, okay, going up, traveling up that way, and, and deal with Gog that's come down like a whirlwind. But for Jesus and the saints, as immortal being, they're going to be able to plow through them, as it were. The surge of the waters, as it's described there, uh, is going to be like the sea of nations, no problem for them. Now, whenever you're sort of in poetic language like this, we've got to be th using cross-references to help us to understand more about these passages. So where else do we get in the Bible the idea of the waters surging up, um, and in that case, the horses being drowned even? Can you, can you think where else we get that idea in the Bible? So, so somebody I can hear sort of muttering, perhaps to the person next to them, which is great, uh, the Red Sea, uh, the Exodus. So let's again hold Habakkuk 3. Let's see if we can prove that. Go to Exodus chapter 15. So don't lose Habakkuk 3. Might never find it again. Exodus 15. So Exodus 15 is the song of Moses, it's called. It's a, it's a song that Moses given by God to celebrate them being able to leave Egypt. Exodus 15, verse 1, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown in the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. I always feel ridiculous saying the Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. So you get that idea coming through. The depths covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Yahweh, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Yahweh, has dashed in pieces the enemy. Okay, and just, just flick over as well down to verse 19. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea. Yahweh brought them the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. So just, just looking back then to, so hold that perhaps, but look back to Habakkuk again. It's clear to me that you can sort of link verse 15 of Habakkuk 3 
really we're contrasting it, isn't it? That thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses. You were able to do what Pharaoh's armies couldn't do. This is an immortal army. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints who are able to be able to just go through the sea with your horses, through the heaps of great waters. It's a clear contrast, isn't it, to Exodus 15 and verses 1 to 6. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to look to free Israel, where Pharaoh would look to try to capture Israel. Now the Lord is going to free Israel from the northern invader. This chapter is one as well, so you can let, let that go Exodus 15, back in at Habakkuk 3 again. Is one that, that helps us to get a picture of the journey that's taken by the Lord Jesus and the saints to get up to deal with that invader um, that, have, that have come down. The, the, the threshing of the heathen in anger, verse 12 of Habakkuk 3, would suggest is Armageddon. Okay, against verse 12, I've put in my margin Ezekiel 39 uh, and verse 8. You know, that, that's what that passage is speaking about. But they've got to get from Sinai to there. And Habakkuk 3 is going to help us to see the journey they're going to take in, in, in going from Sinai up to this point. So where can we see that? Well, come back to the beginning of... No, in fact, I'll, I'll give you another cross-reference first of all, okay? This is another goodie. Um, yeah, uh, apologies. Look at verse 3 first of all, okay? So Habakkuk 3, verse 3. God, the mighty ones, okay, Elohim, in this case, Eloha, so it's, a, it's the uh, singular, the Lord Jesus Christ, came from Timan, and the Holy One from Mount Paran in Sinai, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. So if we look at a map, we'd realize that this is coming from the south from the Sinai area. So coming from Timan, coming from Paran, means that they're coming up from the south to get to this point where in verse 12, thou didst thresh the heathen in thine anger. We, we understand they're coming from south of Israel, from the Sinai area, coming up on that journey. Now, I want you to hear then in verse 13 of Habakkuk 3, pick up another really helpful cross-reference here. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the anointed of, uh, even for the salvation, sorry, of thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the uh, house of the wicked. Well, my margin there, against thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked, see what yours says, but mine says Psalm 68 verse 21. Okay, let's hold this time Habakkuk 3 and Psalm 68. And again, we find this really, really helpful. So, against thou woundest the head out of the head of the, the house of the wicked, in Habakkuk 3 and verse 13, I've got Psalm 68, verse 21. And I look at Psalm 68, verse 21, God shall wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of such an one as goeth on still in his trespasses. And I see, oh yeah, that's really clear. In fact, Psalm 68, I also see a reference to Habakkuk 3 and verse 13. So I'm going to circle that. Clearly, this is talking about the same thing. And I can also see another one, you know, so often if you see a good connection, have a look around. Uh, I can see in verse, the beginning of, of Habakkuk 3, verse 13, thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people. 
and I'm looking at Psalm 68 now in verse 7. O God, thou wentest forth before thy people when thou didst march through the wilderness, Selah. So that idea of just thou wentest forth, I can see there very clearly as well. So it's clear then that Habakkuk, who's after the psalm, the writer of the psalms, is being inspired, isn't he, to pick up the words of Psalm 68. So if you've got those references down, let's just drop um, Habakkuk for now. We're going to come back to Habakkuk and concentrate on the psalm for now. This psalm is prophesying of a time in the future when God will arise and let his enemies be scattered. Psalm 68, verse 1. So to the chief musician, a psalm or song of David. Let God arise. So it's looking ahead. Let God do this. It's not looking to the past. It's talking about a future thing. Let God at some point arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. To, to understand this prophecy about when God will eventually let his enemies be scattered. So it's a, a prophecy about the fact that something is going to happen. Okay, that's really clear from the opening verses of Psalm 68. It's not talking about something that has happened. It's saying, let this happen. It's a future event that the psalm is prophesying about. But to understand how that will happen, how God will scatter his enemies, what happens in this psalm is the psalmist looks back to the Exodus to help us look through the prism of the Exodus to understand what is going to happen in the future. I hope that in some way makes some sense to you. So the beginning of the psalm is clearly a prophecy about something that's got to happen in the future. Let God do this. To understand how he will do this, the psalmist now is going to look back to what happened at the time of the Exodus to give us a prism, a, 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 a mean, a framework of understanding how that will happen. I, I hope, yeah, as I say, that uh, that's something you can just about get your heads around. So we have a look then at verse 7, and now we see connections to the Exodus. Verse 7. Oh God, when, I'm looking back now, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness. So do you see, it's looking back now at the wilderness journey to understand, to give us an understanding of the prophecy about what God will eventually do. Look at your margin against verse 7. Mine gives me a cross-reference to Exodus, um, Exodus 13 and verse 21. Okay, can you see that? O God, when thou wentest forth, Habakkuk 3, yes, the future, but Exodus 13, the past. Okay, Exodus 13 and verse 21. Now, as in a very important aside here, 
there's another key area of scripture that the psalmist draws our minds to. And this isn't one that we're going to be able to have time to open up this afternoon, but one that you've got to make sure you make a reference to. And that is to Judges 4 and 5. So can you also see against verse 7, thou wentest forth, Judges 4 and verse 14. And when I see something like this, and you know, I'm not trying to be patronizing, I promise you, I'm just sort of sharing you what, what took me too long to work out. If what I did here in Psalm 68 is just go through the, the references in the central margin. And in the case of Judges 4 and 5, I've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. that are nothing to do with me, just in the central margin. And what I would do then is color them in the same color so that I just got an immediate thing for me to be able to see when I'm in this chapter, this is a clear uh, a chapter that clearly links to Judges 4 and 5, which is, and if you're not sure about those chapters, they are about Deborah and Barak. And they are amazing passages about the Battle of Armageddon, about the, you know, that's what their prophecies of, and about the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints going up to defeat uh, Agog. So the fact there's links to those passages there from Psalm 68, again, help me to see we're on the right lines here. Uh, but apologies, that's not a chapter that we're going to be able to have time to, to open up. But certainly, if you're going to study Psalm 68 you know, by yourself after this, go back to Judges and uh, appreciate the importance of those connections. For now, we're just going to hold on to this key, one key echo, and that is of the Exodus. And what we're doing is suggesting that this psalm is another important passage regarding Jesus and the saints. We saw the connection from Habakkuk 3, but for us to understand their work, we're being directed to Israel's journey from Sinai, the Exodus. Notice how Psalm 68 verse 1, just look back there, refers to Numbers 10, verse 35. Let God arise. That is a, an immediate connection as well to the wilderness journey. And again, I'm, I'm not going to do this with you now, but I'm, I'm just telling you, you know, you could really enjoy doing some personal study on Psalm 68 and seeing other connections to the Exodus. But this psalm is a prophecy eventually about the future time when God will rise up through a multitude of people and they will march and conquer the nations who oppose Israel. Yes, we know that Israel as a nation had had to wander around the wilderness for 38 years because of their lack of faith. However, their journey wasn't supposed to be a long one. The route from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, to the bottom of the, the land of Israel, was an 11-day journey, you know, for, for mortal people, that is. So the, the journey for the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints is no problem to come from here up into the land of Israel. Another key passage we want to put in place as evidence that this journey of the Lord Jesus and the saints starts in Sinai is in Deuteronomy chapter 33. We may well come back to Psalm 68. Just come to Deuteronomy, 60, Deuteronomy 33, sorry. And hopefully, if, if nothing else, we just kind of get hold of some, some just important passages here. So, Deuteronomy chapter 33, we are looking at another far-reaching prophecy. But look how it starts. Deuteronomy 33, 
Verse 2, the Lord came from Sinai, rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran. Remember where we saw Paran? Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3. He came with 10,000 of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yea, he loved the people, and all his saints are in thy hand. And they sat down at thy feet. Everyone shall receive of thy words. Like Psalm 68, this passage is going to look way beyond the, the Exodus. It's a prophecy looking into the future. Look at verse 27. Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy before thee, and shall say, destroy them. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine, and his heavens shall drop down dew. So it's looking to a time when eventually Israel will be able to dwell safely. No, that's never happened in reality. It's, this is a prophecy about when eventually that will happen. And the way that it's going to happen is that as the Lord came from Sinai, so too that will happen again in the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints going from Sinai up to, uh, to rescue Judah from the northern invader. Just, again, have a quick look at your cross-reference in verse 2, okay? Because I just think this is helpful, because what I'm trying to do is say to you, look, this isn't me saying this. You know, anyone that's putting connections together in Scripture would see how clear this is. Look at your cross-reference against verse 2 of Deuteronomy 33. Recognising it's a verse which is speaking about how the Lord God is going to save Israel. Now, I know we won't all have the same marginal references, but look what you've got. For me, I've got Exodus 19, okay? I've got Judges 5. Is that what's in your margin? I've got Psalm 68. I've got Habakkuk chapter 3, okay? These are these key references about this. So we've considered the fact that a key passage about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4, connects with Exodus 19 when Israel were at Sinai for a time. And at that time, God told them that they were going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We then looked at, very briefly, and I kind of get in, in no detail at all, but Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 68, and Habakkuk 3. Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 68 mention Sinai as the starting point of a journey. And yes, they are looking back and talking about Israel in the past, but they are prophecies about future events. So that gives us confidence to say there is the starting point. And then Habakkuk also mentions other places between Sinai and the southern border of Israel. So this is why we believe that the journey of the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints starts in Sinai. So therefore, it's logical that that's where the judgment will happen. They journey then, like Israel of old did, and travel up from Sinai to the Promised Land. So now let's open up a bit more detail. Habakkuk chapter 3 again. So verse 3 again. God came from Timan. The Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. 
His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. So there on the screen, I've kind of put that we believe this is God here. Eloah is speaking of Jesus as God's representative with the saints. We know the saints are there. Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 68 told us that. And I, I should apologize because I'm, I'm pretty sure I didn't actually give you the reference in Psalm 68 regarding the saints. So that was Psalm 68 and verse 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. So, you know, it kind of connects back to Sinai, but uh, that's the point. This is in Sinai, uh, but connecting back to the time when they were there in Exodus chapter 19 too. So we believe that the, the, the mighty one with the, uh, the, the saints, as it said in Deuteronomy 33, it specifically says there, the saints, um, they are going to be the ones that are spoken of here in Habakkuk 3 and verse 3. Verse 4, his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand or rays coming out of his hand. And there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet. So he's clearly got immortal power. Yet in some way it's hidden, verse 4. Well, again, we're just thinking, speculating in a way, but perhaps it's in the sense that the world in general doesn't realise that the Lord Jesus Christ has returned. So in that sense, perhaps it's hidden. The word pestilence I find is interesting here in verse 5, that actually it's the Hebrew debir, which simply is the word. In other words, it's a pronouncement from God which is going out. Uh, and you might tie that into the little book in Revelation 10, for those of you that uh, it's a passage we're not going to now, but that's another passage about this. Revelation 10 uh, is famously sometimes referred to as the march of the rainbowed angel. That's what this is, the, the march of the Lord Jesus Christ from Sinai with the saints up to Jerusalem. Uh, the little book, the word. We notice also the burning coals that went forth from his feet. And I'm giving you some cross references there on the screen. Revelation 1 and verse 15 describes the multitudinous Christ, Jesus and the saints, and uses that language again. We know other passages describe the return of the Lord Jesus Christ with fiery judgments. And I've given you there 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 and 8 or Malachi 4 and verse 1. Just, just as sort of any cross reference in a sense we could pick up about Jesus coming with fiery judgments. We then see in verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The, the idea of him measuring the earth. Again, again, it's this poetic language in it. We're just thinking to ourselves, what, what could this mean? And here's a suggestion that it's, it's being, we're being told that the judgment that's coming is exact. He's measured the earth, as it were. He's going to do precisely what needs to be done. And the hills and the mountains uh, are, are clearly metaphors for the nations. They, they won't be able to stand in his way. Um, the everlasting mountains were scattered in that sense. The nations that have always been able to be standing up for themselves, the perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. Okay? They, those nations will be kind of put to an end. 
verse 7 is possibly a reference to how the Lord Jesus Christ might deal with some of the nations surrounding Israel. Um, Midian here would be Jordan to the southeast, uh, possibly even kind of stretching into some of Saudi Arabia as well. Um, and again, there's other verses that you can sort of connect in to that. Um, and something, again, we're just not going to, to try to open up now. Verse 8. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea? Thou didst ride upon thy horses and thy chariots of salvation. And again, if you look in your margin, mine gives me Deuteronomy 38, 33, sorry, Deuteronomy 33, verses 26 and 27. You know, it's Exodus language again. That's the, that's the, um, the, the, the way that we're supposed to view these passages so that we get an understanding of how it will be. So Exodus uh, Deuteronomy 33 is the, uh, the passage in my margin there against verse 8. Verse 9, thy, ba- thy, thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. Uh, so what I think that verse there is saying is that the promise that God made that he still has a purpose with Israel, his oath to the tribes, okay? That, that God, you know, when people, and some people do want to sort of say, oh, Israel are not in the purpose of God anymore, nonsense, okay? His, the oath that he made to the tribes is sure, okay? He, he will come back and rescue Israel. Uh, verse 10, the mountains trembled. And again, our margin links it, you know, mine does, to Exodus 19. No, that's the passage about Sinai. And Judges 5, that's the passage about Deborah and Barak. So I'm hoping we're just beginning to see that there are these key passages that are connecting to this time. We realize this chapter is going to get to the point of Armageddon. Verse 11 and 12 is what I was saying to you. Verse 13, that is Armageddon, when Jesus then will be able to go up and rescue Israel and thresh the nations in anger, Gog and those who've come down against Israel. But we can find another passage which fits in here now. Okay? This time come with me to Isaiah 62. So this is that passage that we read together. So this is a wonderful kingdom passage, Isaiah 62. While you're turning there, for some of you, I'll, I'll just read the beginning of it. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. Now that's the lovely idea, isn't it? It goes forth. It's something that's going to spread out. Uh, The Gentiles will see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory. Thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of Yahweh and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah. For Yahweh delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. So, so kind of a beautiful picture there of the fact that the, the, the kingdom will be in Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem will be at rest. Instead of being a land forsaken and desolate, it will be a place of delight, forever bound to God, married in that sense. But of course, That isn't the case yet. Verse 6, 
I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of Yahweh, keep not silence. Give him no rest. Brother Dan referred to it in his prayer. Give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. It hasn't happened yet, has it? So we get the picture in verse chapter 62, verse 1 to 4 of, of the end of where, where we're going to be. But it hasn't happened yet. We've got it when we can't give God rest until it has happened. And the end of this chapter now, chapter 62, which then leads into chapter 63, speaks of this journey that we've been thinking about. Verse 10. Go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Behold, Yahweh hath proclaimed unto the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Okay, so imagine this, picture the scene, that Gog has come down, that, you know, they're in dire straits in Israel, and the, the call is going out. Behold, your salvation comes. Someone's going to come and save you. And of course, the, who that is, is the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints. Behold, thy salvation cometh. His reward is with him, his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Now, I want you to be kind of just put, see this clear point to me. Verse 12 talks about two sorts of people. The holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, are the saints. Okay, that's who that's speaking about. The saints with the Lord Jesus. Uh, Thy salvation cometh is the cry to mortal Israel. So, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ means, Yah salvation, behold, thy salvation cometh. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Yah salvation, who's going to come and save Israel. And he's coming to save with the saints, the holy people, the redeemed, who are now immortal. Israel, Jerusalem, will be called, verse 12, you will be called, sought out a city not forsaken. So there's two people being spoken of here. There's Jesus and the saints, who are the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. They are the ones coming to bring salvation to the city that's sought out, a city not forsaken, Jerusalem. So again, let's just step back and picture the scene. Israel needs saving. We know Gog will come down. Zechariah 14 speaks of half of the city going into captivity. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Daniel 12, verse 1. Tell us it's going to be a time of trouble such as never was. They're in desperate need to stop them being wiped off the map. And the message that comes, that someone is giving them, and I believe that it's Elijah and some of the saints who've been sent on in advance, are saying, behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him. And just notice in your margin there, against those, that phrase, behold, his reward is with him, Isaiah 40 and verse, I can't read it, verse 10. Okay, Isaiah 40, verse 10, that's worth circling. We're going to go there shortly. So where is their salvation coming from? Isaiah 63 and verse 1. Who is this? It's the salvation coming. Who is this that comes from Edom? So we're getting a picture of where they're coming from. With dyed garments from Bozra. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. 
It's the answer of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's me coming, you know, mighty to save. So let's put this map on now. So we get this idea. Sinai is where it began, Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 68. They go through Paran, Habakkuk 3, okay? They're now coming up towards Edom, okay? This is where we are, aren't we? But Isaiah 63, okay, to Bozrah, Isaiah 63 and verse 1. So have you got this sense then of this journey that they're going on, okay? Like Israel of old, to go up to the promised land, this time not to just kind of walk into the land uh, for the land to be taken from them as they did with Israel of old, but this time to make sure that this becomes the land of the kingdom. So Edom and Bozrah are places in the south. This is the continuation of the journey. The Lord Jesus traveling with the saints in strength. In strength because they're, they're, they're immortal. You know, that, that's what I, I would be kind of putting there in uh, my margin. You know, uh, when it says traveling in the greatness of his strength, they're immortal beings now. Uh, past the judgment going up to save Israel. We also, though, run across something which is quite challenging in this chapter. So I, I, I don't want to kind of just skip that and say, look, it doesn't matter. We, we've got to be able to uh, uh, be honest and try our best to, to explain some of these things. A question is asked in verse 2, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? So why are you red in your apparel? It's the question that's asked of the Lord Jesus. Uh, why is that the case, they're asking. So we've got to try to see if we can answer that. Well, he answers it, verse 3. Because I've trodden the winepress alone, and other people there was no man with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Now, this is not easy to interpret, and a cross-reference which is likely to be helpful is Revelation 19. However, that chapter would suggest is actually sometime later than Isaiah 63, when Jesus goes out to conquer Babylon, a later phase, okay, uh, the, the Roman Catholic system. And we're not going to try to get into that at all today. The, the point here, though, in Isaiah 63, I believe, is that Jesus alone is the conqueror. The Jews will very shortly recognize him as the one they pierced and mourn. That, that's from Zechariah uh, chapter 8. They, they will realize that he was the Messiah. The victories of the past and the present are his. Verse 4. The day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. So, let's just tie that together. Who are you, read in your apparel? Jesus makes the point. I am the one who was victorious, alone. But, verse 4, the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Now, the redeemed are with me. And the redeemed, let's just make sure we connect this, are from chapter 62, verse 12, the holy people, the saints. So, verse 4, the year of the saints has now come. So, what he's saying in Isaiah 63 is, I alone... I'm the one who's conquered. And that's true, isn't it? No, although we hope to be amongst the saints, we're not claiming the victory was ours. Clearly not. We, we would all struggle enormously. None of us have got a chance being in the kingdom on our own strength. But for the Lord Jesus Christ, he alone conquered. But now the time of the redeemed, the holy ones, the saints has come. They are now joining him in being able to take the battle to uh, the northern invader to save Israel at this time. 
So, where are my apologies? Okay. Um, so I said, make take a note, didn't I, of Isaiah 40 against chapter 62 and verse 11. And I think it's worth just trying to open that out. So let's just, against verse 11, Isaiah 40, let's go back to Isaiah 40, see if we can understand a little bit more here. So this chapter is looking to a time when comfort can be given to Jerusalem because God will have brought about their salvation. If you know this chapter well, then you'll recognize that this is a chapter which is really famous, actually, in terms of its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ's first coming. So let's just uh, pick this out. So Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem, cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. So there's someone that's going to be saying to her, look, the time has come that your warfare is accomplished. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. She's been through the most horrific time. Verse 3. And if you look in your margin here, you'll see passages that are connected to the beginning of the Gospels, because this is speaking about Jesus' first coming initially. But we're saying it's got a latter-day application. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Well, in terms of the, the voice in the wilderness that did cry, it was John the Baptist. You know, he was the one who prepared the way, uh, verse 3, before the Lord Jesus Christ's first coming. And the cross-references in your margin will tell you that is 100% uh, a fair understanding of what this passage is, okay? It's quoted in the New Testament to that end. However, like lots of prophecies, this passage has more than one fulfillment. And what we're suggesting is that its ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus' second coming, when he'll bring an end to Jerusalem's warfare, so that verse 1 and 2 can actually be uh, fulfilled. That clearly hasn't happened, has it yet? So we're saying this passage has to have a latter-day application for verses 1 and 2 to actually be fulfilled. So let's then try to sort of you know, connect that and, and understand what we're saying. If we then go back and have a look through verses 3 and 4 and 5 with that in mind, then actually we could put things like Habakkuk 3 in our margins in relation to the mountains and the hills. Do you remember in Habakkuk 3, we saw, didn't we, the mountains and the hills being dealt with? So we could say, oh yeah, now that I understand it in latter day, I could be connecting it to Habakkuk 3. But certainly when Jesus first came, John the Baptist went before him, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John, therefore, was a type of what Elijah will come to eventually do. So John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord Jesus. We know that from this passage. Okay? We know it from Malachi 3. It's quoted in the New Testament to say that is what he did. But John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John was a type of what Elijah will actually do in preparing for the Jews for the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming. So what we're suggesting is actually the, this passage here can teach us 
not just about the work of John the Baptist, but actually about the work of Elijah when he comes to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus and the saints coming into Jerusalem. So with that in mind, let's just pick up verse 9. I'm going to read from the revised version here, which just makes a bit more sense of this. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up into the high mountain. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with a mighty one. Okay, the Lord Jesus Christ, the saints. And his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And you should be able to, in your margin, see against verse 10, his reward is with him. Isaiah 62 and verse 11, where we just left off. So, behold your God, behold your Elohim, the strong one. This is the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints that's being spoken of there in verse 10. And you can hopefully, as I say, pick up that cross-reference to Isaiah 62. We're going to finish now. But Habakkuk 3, we sort of got down to verse 9 10. So let's just pick up in verse 10 again. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation, as the light of thy arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. And again, I just think it's worth you being aware of the kind of cross-references in your margin there. You know, I've got Exodus 19, verse 18, Judges 5, verse 8, okay? Um, another great one here that uh, hopefully your margin just gives you is Joshua 10, and, uh, and then to Zechariah 14. So let's just see if I can... Uh, pick that out for you okay so there on the screen I've given you those the sun stood still and the moon stayed uh, Joshua 10 another wonderful prophetic passage about the time of the end um, Zechariah 14 again passage about the time of the end you can put in your margin and again like for half the time these things are already there you just got to circle them so these passages, along with many others, some of which uh, I, I've noted on the, the slide there, are, are getting us to the point of Armageddon, the battle which is going to take place between Jesus and the saints as they confront the king of the north that's come down. So we've considered some of these passages about how the Lord Jesus and the saints do go up from the place of the judgment at Sinai, the journey as Israel did of old, messengers precede them telling the Jews to hold on your salvation is coming Jesus and the saints then go in and defeat Gog and those nations and they empower the Jews to fight at that time too Zechariah 10 would be able to explain that for you and then after some gigantic cleanups taking place the land is finally ready for the establishment of the kingdom exciting times ahead Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. 
if you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.